The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, show us in the lives of others how you are calling us to live as your people today. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning by trying to describe a church, not a specific church, mind you, but a church that exists in a specific time. For a while, that church had been growing like crazy. Lots of excitement, lots of people participating in many ways, new leaders stepping up, lots going on in the community. And as a result, a lot of people in the community had a very favorable opinion of that church. But then, years later, that same church looks a whole lot different. The original excitement has been replaced by discouragement. Some folks just quit the whole coming to church thing. There was less cohesion, less enthusiasm. Some were even questioning the need for church itself, questioning even the faith. And much of the time, the community around them, if they had any opinion at all of the church, it wasn't very favorable. Does that description of this church sound familiar? Of how things used to be, but now how things are years later. Who might I be talking about? You may have some ideas on who that might be, but who I'm talking about is the church that first receives this letter that we read today in the book of Hebrews. There's a lot we don't know about this book of the Bible. We don't know who wrote it, for instance. And also, if you've ever read it, man, a lot of it just doesn't make sense because it's pretty dense in places. But scholars do have a pretty good idea on when that book was written and to whom it was written. It seems it was written to a group of Jewish Christians who were facing growing persecution for their faith. They were getting it from two sides. One was from the Jewish community. These Jewish Christians were Jews who had, who had accepted Christ as Messiah. And over time, they were getting kicked out of the synagogue, their place of worship. And there was growing animosity among the two groups. But even more... There was growing opposition from the Roman oppressors. I'll just give you one example of that. In, AD, in 64 AD, which is probably around the same time that this book was written, Rome burned. It burned many blocks, many miles. Hundreds of people were killed. Thousands of people were left homeless. It was a time when Nero was the emperor, and there's a legend that, that Nero was playing the fiddle while Rome burned. That probably wasn't true. But Nero was excited that this part of Rome burned because it was a poverty-stricken part of, of Rome, and so therefore he was going to get to rebuild it in all his majesty. And then he decided, you know, I'm going to blame the Christians for it, even though they didn't do it. 
And it set off this huge wage of, of persecution that it showed how extremely violent the Roman powers could be against these Christians. They were even, they were even killing some of them. And they, what they would do is they would light them, light them up, you know, burn them at night. So they would kind of like be torches for people to see. That's what was going on during the time of this church that reads this letter today. And in reading that whole letter, you'll find that some in the church were growing weary of the Christian life, the pressures they were feeling. Some were struggling with their faith, wondering why in the world is this happening to us? What had been a cohesive church seemed to be falling apart. This is the church that whoever wrote this letter is writing to. And one of the main things the author tries to do in the part we read today is encourage them there in their faith and to continue on as the body of Christ. One way he does that, this person does that, is by lifting up examples of faith that's come before him. Chapter 11 of Hebrews is called the great roll call of faith because the writer lifts up many different people from the Old Testament and talks about their faith. By faith, Abram did this. By favor of by faith, uh, Jacob did this. All along. He begins that chapter, though, by saying, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. Hoped for, but not seen. And then after this great roll call of faith, remembering those of the past, the writer reminds the church of something. Yet all of these, these ones that had come before us, they didn't receive what was promised since God had provided something better so that they would not apart from us be made perfect. All of these ones that had come before, all of them were faithful and trusting in God, but they never received the fullness that they had hoped for, the fullness of God's presence, but they never received it, not in this life but in the life to come, because there was something better ahead for them. And then this author speaks directly to this church, this church that's struggling and discouraged and growing weary. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. Now I want to pause a second and point out something that you wouldn't notice unless you had the Greek in front of you. This word surrounded by, as in surrounded by the great cloud of witnesses, and then the word cling so closely to the sin, they come from the same root word. The root word in, in Greek is peri, P-E-R-I, as in, and it means all around. Like a perimeter is you know, all around. A periscope is that thing on the submarine that comes up and it spins around. It goes all around. The surrounded by these great cloud of witnesses, but at the same time, surrounded all around by the sin that tempts us, that wants us to give up. And then we read on, with that swirling around us, let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, 
Don't give up. Keep running. Remember those who have lived that life before you, who didn't get all that they hoped for, but they kept the faith. Remember them and let them encourage you. But even as you remember the saints, the most important thing comes after that to look to Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And as you look to Jesus, remember what happened to Him, who for the sake of the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, disregarding its shame and has taken His seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. Consider Him who is your Lord, And what he went through and what has happened to him in the resurrection and been placed in glory, may that example encourage you so that you won't go weary. I think what this is trying to tell us is telling the church when times get rough, Look to the saints who came before you and lived lives of faith. Even if they didn't get everything that they had hoped for. Consider the Lord that you looked to and what happened to Him. And how in the resurrection we have hope. And then run your race. It'll be filled with failures and falls. In that chapter 11 the great roll call of faith, the the writer lifts up all these different examples. The first one was Abraham. But remember what Abraham did right off? When he was going, traveling, and he came to Pharaoh, and he told Pharaoh that Sarah was his sister and not his wife. Or how about his grandson Jacob? Jacob, the one who kept robbing from his own brother. Or how about the people of Israel that are lifted up by faith? Remember when they crossed the Red Sea? They spent most of the time complaining about how they didn't have all the things they needed. And they wanted to go back to Egypt. And then one name that gets lifted up is Rahab, the prostitute. And then there's David. We know what David did with Bathsheba. The list goes on and on and on. All of those who failed miserably in ways, and yet they are commended for their faith. Let's remember that. One of the reasons why we have this All Saints Day service is that we can remember those who've gone before us and how in their own unique way they lived a faith that can encourage us. I hope in the time of our remembrance today, you've thought of some of those saints. I know some of those names that we've read today. I know some of them have been great encouragements to others. I think of Adam Hyatt, Doris's grandson, who Franklin County High School just had a a kindness week this past week in memory of Adam. I think of Jim Locker who I would go see, whether it was at home when he couldn't get out or or at the Masonic home. The first thing he would ask and want to know is how I'm doing. Many folks who've come before us, 
May they encourage us in our faith. But then the writer tells us to go on and to run our race. Now the thing about running our race as we always look to Jesus to lead us, is that our own race as people, as church, is going to look different than the race that those before us may have run. Last Wednesday night, our Highland Ford group met. Generally, it's to talk about the finances of the church and things that can happen. But somebody in the group printed off a, a handout of something that uh, that person had come across on the internet. And that article talked about churches who were weary, who were tired, who were on the verge of death. And the steps that those ch churches took to bring about new life. And I asked this person, well I actually I told this person, I'm going to show it on the screen on Sunday so all of us can see it. So... Rebecca, can you put, put those up there? A leader must rise and be willing to lead the church toward radical transformation regardless of the personal cost to him or to her. Second one. A significant group in the church must admit that they're desperate for help. It goes on to say this. This group must lead the church from denial to a painful awakening to reality. Number three, that same group must confess guilt. Guilt? They failed to reach the community. They held on to the idolatry of yesterday. They were only comfortable with our kind of people. They saw the church to be a place where their needs would be met and their personal preferences would be catered to. Number four, the group must have an utter, desperate, and prayerful dependence on God. They can no longer look at the way that they've always done it as the path to the future. Five. The church must be willing to storm the community with love. The church can't relieve its guilt by having a food and clothes pantry where the community residents can come to them every once in a while. Members must go into the community, love the unlovable, reach out to the untouchable, and give sacrificially of time and money and heart. The community must be amazed by these church members. Last one. The church must relinquish control if the church reaches the community, the community will come to the church. They may be poor. They may have different colors of skin. They may speak differently. They may love differently. They may have a radically different culture than the members of the church. If the church is truly to reach the community, it must joyfully be willing to let the community have control of the church. That's radically different than welcoming the outsiders to our church. Instead, it's an attitude that says it is now your church. If you, talk, if you took the time to let this soak in any, it's a pretty radical call to be church. 
It's a call to live in some new ways. It would call on us as Highland to walk by faith and not by sight. To look to the saints who've come before us, but also to look to Jesus. We're always called to look there because He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. Our hymn of invitation and commitment is number 66. Please stand, immortal, invisible, God only wise. Mortal, invisible, God only wise.